you close your Bibles, would you open them again to 1 Kings chapter 19, and we'll look at verses 1 through 18 a second time, and the title of the sermon this time is, as I indicated moments ago, Faith and Fainting Fits. Or I suppose if I chose a a more modern title, it would be Faith Fails, colon, Depression. Joseph Hall, the Anglican Puritan of the late um, 16th century said, Holy Elijah flees for his life. We hear not the command of God, but we would willingly presuppose it. See what he's saying? He said that Elijah is fleeing or leaving, but it is not outside of the purpose of God for him to do so. We hear not the command of God, but we would willingly presuppose it, that is, he was told to do this. So divine a prophet should do nothing without God. He goes on to say, who can expect an undaunted constancy from flesh and blood when Elijah fails? The strongest and holiest saint upon earth is subject to some qualms of fear and infirmity, to be always and unchangeably good is proper only to the glorious spirits in heaven. Thus the wise and holy God will have his power perfected in our weakness. And then finally Hull says, it is in vain for us while we carry this flesh about us to hope for so exact health as not to be cast down sometimes with with fits of spiritual distemper. Paul says this is a passage that introduces the matter of depression or what the old-timers, the reformers, and especially the Puritans would have called melancholy. Melancholy is not something new. It is historical, common, universal, familiar, and proverbial. Psychotherapy did not invent it. Think, for example, of Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. He has the slough of Despond, Doubting Castle, Giant Despair. For Bunyan, melancholy was a reality. And it was a reality for Elijah, who was dispirited, and left Samaria. The power of melancholy can be seen throughout the scriptures, not only in Elijah, 
but in Job and David and a whole host of other biblical characters. And it's made its way, or it made its way down through church history and Christian history. Spurgeon suffered from melancholy, and he suffered terribly and seriously from it, perhaps for a medical reason because of um, suffering from gout. We're not particularly sure. William Guthrie was a minister, uh, a Puritan minister, and he wrote a little book called The Christian's Great Interest. It's a great little book published by the Banner of Truth. I don't know if it's still in print or not. But he suffered terribly from melancholy. And one Sunday morning, he was so depressed, he couldn't get out of bed to go preach. So he had to call to the neighboring village. When I say call, he's not using a telephone. He sent a messenger, I'm sure, down. And got uh, the uh, uh, neighboring uh, minister to come and to preach in his church. He was unable to get out of bed. He was so depressed. His wife came home, and he said to his wife from under the covers, well, how did it go, dear? Or however 17th century Puritans would have said that, but how did it go? She said, it was wonderful. It's the best sermon I've ever heard in my life. Ed just sent him into the pit, and he pulled the covers up over his head. Um, William Guthrie, Spurgeon, and of course, we sang moments ago, William Cooper's uh, great hymn on the mystery of providence, the friend of John Newton who suffered all of his life from melancholy and yet he wrote such great hymns and great poetry. And in the midst of all of that, he suffered terribly from what we would call today, we would call depression. Now, I ordinarily don't do this in a sermon, but I'm going to do it today, and that is to recommend some books. I quote books and I quote authors, but I think that there are several volumes that give real perspective and balance, and I'll talk more about that in just a moment, to this whole matter of melancholy. The first book I would recommend is Spiritual Depression by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's a fantastic little book. It's extremely balanced. Um, And he was a medical doctor. Um, And he had been trained in the the best uh, teaching hospital, which is how doctors are trained in England, but in the best teaching hospital under a man by the name of Lord Horder, who was uh, just virtually famous as a doctor. God called Lloyd-Jones into the ministry and he remained as the pastor of Westminster Chapel until his death in 1968. It's a great volume, still in print. And then there's a, a more recent book entitled Christians Get Depressed Too by David Murray. I think David Murray has gone back into the pastorate, but he was for a number of years Uh, one of the professors at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary in in Grand Rapids. And then there's another book entitled Deserted by God, written by Sinclair Ferguson. Deserted by God with a question mark, meaning 
you're never really deserted by God, but that's the title of the book. And then in terms of Puritans, there are a whole host of Puritans that deal with the issue. And one of them, not as common as others, was an early Puritan who died in 1602, an English Puritan, and his name was William Perkins. He and William Ames pretty much set the course for Puritan life over the next century. And then Jonathan Edwards as well, who actually cites uh, William Perkins. Now, when we think of melancholy or fainting fits, as the old timers would have called it, there are two extremes. And Lloyd-Jones and the books that I've recommended avoid these two extremes. And the one extreme is the view that says depression is always biological. It's medical. And probably from the 30s on, 1930s on, or at least the 1950s on, this has become the dominant view. Therapy and medicine are the answers to depression. And then there's another view, which has been the extreme, subsequent to that, probably in reaction to it, and that is to say that depression or melancholy is always spiritual and in particular the result of sin. It's due to corruption and it is always spiritual in that sense. Both of those are extremes Both of them are extremes, I think, from a biblical perspective and certainly from a Reformed and Puritan perspective. So in the words of David Murray, Christians get depressed too. Archibald Alexander was the first president of Princeton Seminary, the Log College initially, and taught there for something like 39 years years. He says this, it is impossible to attempt to resist melancholy by reasoning and rational motives. When it becomes fixed, it may be reckoned among the heaviest calamities to which our suffering nature is subject. It resists all argument and rejects every topic of consolation from whatever source it may proceed. It feeds upon distress and despair and is displeased even with the suggestion or offer of relief. Have you ever tried to help someone that is not just a little down, but severely, severely depressed? No matter what you say doesn't get through. And so it's a serious issue. And does the Bible have anything to say about it? And I think actually this text, among others, but this text, I think at least gives us some direction and uh, some way to go with the topic. Now, I have three points. Unfortunately, I suppose under each of the points, I have a whole series of bulleted points 
And as I look at the clock, I'm thinking, I may not get done with this today. But anyway, we'll take it, we'll take it as it comes. First of all, I want you to notice with me depression and its cause or causes. Now, I must say these are not excuses because I say something under these headings. Do not conclude that I then excuse that particular avenue through which melancholy comes and a person can continue in their melancholy. No, they need help um, and uh, they need the help of helpers. So what are some of the causes? Uh, And not all of them are in this text, but I think to some degree we can find them someplace in the scriptures and certainly in human experience. First of all, the cause of depression may be congenital. Our humanity has flaws. We are not perfect and we're not brought into a perfect world. And each of us have our warts and our flaws, some of which may be inherited. By that I mean we've inherited a particular disposition, a particular direction in which we think. For some, they're sort of born that way. They're, they're born with a tendency, and it doesn't excuse it, doesn't mean they shouldn't get help. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't begin to look at it biblically, but it's just the reality of, um, of, of human life. Secondly, the cause of depression may be physical. That is, some particular loss. Lloyd-Jones has a lot to say about this. Uh, a, a, a terrible automobile accident and a person loses their ability to, to walk again or some physical uh, malady, some loss, and uh, some loss at a, at, a, at a most basic level physically, and they're no longer able to do this or that or something else. Thirdly, the cause of depression may be mental. That is, thinking gone wrong. Uh, the mind has an awful lot to do with how we deal with this even if the issues may be medical. Jonathan Edwards quotes um, William Perkins at this point, and he says this, the famous Mr. Perkins, and that's really an understatement because he was probably the leading Puritan of his day, but the famous Mr. Perkins distinguishes between those sorrows that come through convictions of conscience and melancholic passions arising only from mere imagination. So it was William Perkins. Again, this is not something new, but it was William Perkins who made the distinction between the causes or a cause which may have uh, roots in um, uh, a conscience not satisfied because of sin and mere imagination, the mind running wild. Melancholic passions arising only from mere imagination, strongly conceived in the brain, which he says usually come on a sudden like lightning into a house. So there we have three causes already, congenital, physical, mental. And then fourthly, the cause of depression may be medical. 
Again, David Murray writes, the Puritans were incomparable experts in soul care. They were actually, I'm interrupting myself here, but they were called physicians of the soul. And the soul seemed larger than uh, that ill-defined or non-defined part that just relates to God, but the whole inner man. The Puritans were incomparable experts in soul care. But even they were well aware of the possibility of depression being caused by brain malfunction. You know, the brain is an organ. I'm interrupting myself again. The brain's an organ. It's like the heart or the lungs or any other uh, part of, of the body. Brain malfunction. William Perkins spent hours counseling people every week and distinguished between melancholy with a physical cause requiring medicine, and I don't know what medicines they would have used in the day, and conviction of sin, which had a spiritual cause and required the blood of Christ. Fifthly, the cause of depression may be emotional. Some people are just more that way and others are less so. And we often joke about certain uh, people or people from certain parts of the world being more emotional and some seemingly having no emotions at all. But some people are just that way again. Sixthly, the cause of depression may be situational. The fruit of some sickness or of some disease. There are some diseases and some sicknesses that can produce um, melancholy or a mood of dispiritedness. Seventhly, the cause of depression may be providential, circumstantial, things coming into our life that cause us to feel down or to feel low or worse. The cause of depression, eighthly, may be adversarial. It may be demonic. Um, It may be satanic. And ninthly, the cause of depression may be sinful. And again, there are those who always begin here and say that that's always the case, and yet um, it's not quite that simple. And at the same time, the cause of depression may be sinful. A sin committed that goes unconfessed and an ability to rise above it because of what that person knows this to be sin. Murray quotes William Perkins again, David Murray does, and says, sorrow that comes by melancholy ariseth only of the humor, that is sickness, annoying the bodies. But this other sorrow ariseth out of man's sins for which his conscience accuses him. Melancholy may be cured by physique, meaning medicine. This sorrow cannot be cured by anything but the blood of Christ. And so it requires, as Dr. Lloyd-Jones would have said, careful diagnosis. And if not on the part of the person suffering from melancholy, perhaps from someone else. 
Tenthly, the cause of depression may be what we, call, what we could call supernatural, that is divine, sovereign, God bringing it into a person's life. Now, of course, God is the ruler over all events, but we're thinking in particular of those that might cause depression. Our Confession of Faith, chapter 5, and interestingly, the Westminster Confession, chapter 5, and paragraph 5, and it's the same paragraph there too, says, The most holy, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his manifold, or his own children. And it goes on to say, To manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts, to chasten them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled. And then there's a semicolon. And to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself. God may be the prime mover, as it were, to produce some spiritual advance. In Second Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 31, um, God left Hezekiah alone so that he might see and discover something of his heart and to test him. And so we ought not to dismiss the, the supernatural nature of depression, and especially as it relates to some occasion. And then 11thly, the cause of depression may be spiritual at another level. And I think, as we'll rediscover, that is at least in part the case with Elijah. Spiritual disappointment. Nothing had changed. And in verse 3, he says, or the text says as much that, that he feared Jezebel and left Samaria but didn't just go a few miles away or to another country, but he goes all the way down to Horeb. And in the travels of several hundred miles, he is supported by angels and by the Lord himself. And when the Lord asks him, why are you here? Some have taken that to be a rebuke. But it's not so much a rebuke as a kind of reinforcement. Why are you here? And Elijah says, I have been jealous for your cause, my paraphrase. He says it twice. I have been jealous. And absolutely nothing has changed. And it brings him low. Ministers may be guilty of melancholy for this reason, and so may church members and entire congregations. Nothing seems to change. 
spiritual disappointment. Spurgeon says this, this fainting fit, speaking of Elijah's, is easily to be accounted for. It was the most natural thing for the world for Elijah to be sick at heart and a desire to die. With such a hard day's work, with such stern mental toil, such marvelous spiritual exercises, he's thinking now of what took place on Mount Carmel. It is a wonder that the man's reason did not reel. But instead thereof, there came on that reaction, which as we are mortal men, must follow strong excitement. And he now feels depressed and heavy. And a woman's threat cows him, who could not once have been cowed by armed hosts. It is not marvelous that it should have been so, for it is just like human nature. The boldest sometimes tremble, and it may easily be accounted for on natural principles. That's Spurgeon. Lloyd-Jones writes, Many people, in fact, are in utter ignorance concerning this realm, where the borderlines between the physical, psychological, and spiritual meet. Frequently, I've found that such church leaders have treated those whose trouble was obviously mainly physical or psychological in a purely spiritual manner. And if you do so, you not only don't help, you aggravate the problem. Well, there are the causes, or at least some of the causes, having us land back in the context um, which we're looking at once again. So depression has its cause and its causes a great number of them. Secondly, depression and its cure. What does the text tell us as to a way forward with depression? Well, first of all, realize its reality. Don't be dismissive of it should someone you encounter um, Suffer from that, don't dismiss it. Denial is no help. Blaming someone or blaming something else when the cause may be elsewhere isn't a help. Realize it's a very, very real thing. Secondly, recognize its cause. Um, Resolve to discover what the reason for it is. If, if there are 11 or more reasons why depression or melancholy may arise, then try to find the source or help your friend or your family member or whomever find the source. And that may take time. As Lloyd-Jones says, misdiagnosis is disastrous. He saw the circumstances of a misdiagnosis. Thirdly, retain your interest in others. That is, if you're suffering from this. People tend to become extremely isolated regardless of the cause of their depression. Notice what Elijah does as he's traveling. He drops his servant off in a protective place. 
and goes on alone. And in fact, he's told uh, by an angel, you, you can't do this. This is too much for you. And so he actually has some concern. You might miss it as you read the context, but he actually leaves his servant behind. And I think he leaves his servant behind because he cared for him. Uh, For all of his melancholy, he had not lost his concern for those around him. And he puts him in a place of safety, fulfilling his responsibilities to at least one who was around him. Spurgeon actually saw that in a sermon on this text and says, even in his anxiety about himself, he had tender considerations for others. And besides, he wanted complete solitude. Fourthly, replenish your strength or help your friend replenish their strength. The angel fed him, and he finds rest under, under a tree, um, a particular kind of a tree. It's called, in, in today's parlance, it's referred to as a broom tree, and it's, it's about nine feet tall, and it has broad leaves. And so he finds a, pla- finds a place um, in the wilderness, in the desert, as it were, to get some rest. And then he wakes up. Because an angel has brought him some food. And if you have any doubt that God is, is not in this, or that God has abandoned him because of his alleged sin, notice that angels are sent and the Lord himself addresses Elijah. The angel fed him. The angel gave him rest. Uh, rest. The physical part of our humanity remains an issue even if the problem is spiritual. Nourish the body. It would seem as if that's something natural to say, but it arises really out of the the text itself. And so fifthly, restore your health. Um, Elijah needs to restore his health. Um, what is happening to him now doesn't, doesn't come on, on Mount Carmel, uh, place of victory, but subsequent. Sixthly, realize your weakness. Notice that he's told in verses 7 and 8, this is too great for thee. You can't do this. This is too great for thee. Seventhly, recognize seasons of sovereignty. There's a difference between Carmel and Horeb or Sinai. Eighthly, retire to be with God. Notice he meets God. He meets God in this cave, which may well be the same uh, cleft in the rock uh, where Moses hid and met with God. Ninthly, remember the means of grace. Notice that God was not in all of the loud noise, not in the bombast of noise, but he came to Elijah 
with a soft, quiet voice. It's his word. God speaks. And it is through God's speech that we may be comforted. And after, after all these many years of ministry, one of the things that I've observed is that when people grow discouraged or depressed, suffering from melancholy, or possessing a fainting fit, the tendency is to withdraw. And perhaps you've seen that as well. The tendency is to pull back. And to pull back in terms of human relationships, including that context which can be of the greatest possible value to them, and that's the church and the people of God. How many times over the years, and I won't mention any names, but how many times over the years have we seen people pull away and at the end of the day, they were suffering from melancholy and they wouldn't deal with it. And whether it was physical or spiritual, whatever the cause was, They just wouldn't deal with it. And their way of dealing with it was pulling away in order to find someone that would reinforce how they were feeling. And so that's just a warning to to this small fellowship of the Lord's people. If, If you find yourself suffering this way, the very last thing you ought to do is to pull away and to become isolated. Remember that God has appointed the means of grace, the private means of grace. God speaks to him privately, and even though it's not included here, but the public means of grace. God speaks. And so redirect your focus from yourself to God. Review your cause. Again, Elijah says, I have been jealous for your cause, and it's come to absolutely nothing. And then, perhaps the most important, is rely on covenant and promise. You remember I mentioned this last time, that where is it that Elijah goes? On the surface, it looks like he's running away from God, but he's not running away from God. He's running to God, and God is not running away from him. Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai, and this is where God inaugurated a covenant with him. Why are you here? I'm here because I've been jealous for the cause of God. Elijah's travel is an act of faith, not an act of rebellion. And we need to remember that our God is the God of covenant promise. This is where God met with Moses, gave the law, and we have a new covenant, a better covenant. One that Jeremiah prophesies 
in Jeremiah chapter 31. And the author to the book of Hebrews records the elements in chapter 8 and verses 8 through 12. Here is a covenant that is formal. I will make a new covenant. It's supernatural. It's God intervening. It's internal, not just external as Moses was. The law of God would be placed upon the heart and the mind. It is personal, it is intimate. I will be your God and you will be my people. It is an effectual covenant. Everyone in the covenant, without exception, knows the Lord. And it is merciful. It is a covenant that brings pardon. Why are you here? Well, I'm here because I've been jealous for your cause. He's the only speaking prophet left. The rest are hiding in a cave. And here is the very place where he could reflect on Moses' life, the beginning of the covenant, what happened to the people through their idolatry, all of those great truths surrounding the giving of the law of God. And so what does God say to him? Why are you here? He tells God why he's there. And God says, well then, if that's the case, get back to work. And that's another piece of advice. What's the cure Retrace your steps, go back to work, and he gives them some things to do. Consider the resources that you have, and God tells him about the various ones that are to be inaugurated and ordained and and, and have a responsibility. And then he's reminded of his prospectus. 7,000. There are. Rest assured, Elijah, at the end of the day, you're really not the only one left. Joseph Hall wrote, Do your worst, O ye gates of hell. God will have his own. He that could have more will have some. That foundation is sure. God knoweth who are his. Well, I'm not going to be able to finish, so let me just sort of round this out the best I can. The greatest men and women of faith, even they, may be subject to fainting fits. James tells us that Elias was a man subject to like passions or passions as we are. Melancholy is real, maybe insufferable, problematic, even spiritual. 
But that does not mean that God himself has abandoned us. God is not dead, nor are his promises discarded. None of his covenantal promises have been annulled, regardless of how we may feel. Close with this illustration. On one occasion, when Martin Luther was greatly discouraged, he was forcefully reminded of the fact that God is not dead by his wife, Catherine von Bora. Seeing him unresponsive to any word of encouragement, one morning she appeared in black mourning clothes. You know, the day was at a funeral, everybody wore black. I don't see that so much today, but that's what mourning clothes, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. No word of explanation was forthcoming. And so Luther, who had heard nothing of someone dying, um, asked his wife, Catherine, why are you dressed in mourning black? Someone has died, she replied. Died, said Luther. I've not heard of anyone dying. Whoever can have died? It seems, his wife replied, that God must have died. Luther took the point. He, a believer, Christian man with such a great God to call his father was living like a practical atheist. Deserted by God? Absolutely not. He's still there and he still loves his people and he still ministers to them. Even Elijah on this occasion. And he will for us as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do commend ourselves to you and to the word of your grace, to your love and to your faithfulness to us. We confess that we don't always live up to the truths of which we confess. And at the same time, we grow discouraged over a day of small things. And we may suffer greatly from fainting fits. Revive us, oh God, we pray. Oh, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.